When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the show, and thank you to everyone who sent messages to our guest from last week. She really can use our support, and it's been really beautiful to see what this community has been able to provide when it comes to love, acceptance, and support. With regards to today's episode, I'd like to mention before we get started, our guest Naomi asked to add in two things. And instead of adding them in while she's speaking, I'll just say them right here before we get started. So number one, when we're talking about single men and masturbation, she wants to clarify that it is a sin even though in the mental health space, it is acceptable in a healthy amount. And the second request was to add in that women are also participants of this kind of behavior of betrayal in marriage and relationships, not only men. So I'm adding this in before we get started. This may be a triggering conversation, so please listen to your gut. And as always, I love hearing from you. If you'd like to join the Francisco Show WhatsApp group, please message me. The email is in the show notes. And here we go. Welcome back to the Francisco Show. Today's episode is inspired by some posts I saw in some exclusive women Jewish Facebook groups. And that's how we connected with our guest. And We'll dive into your introduction and then we'll introduce the topic. So today with us, we have Naomi Lewis Afria in California. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So great to have you. Tell us about yourself, both religiously and professionally. Religiously might be easier. We'll start with that. I grew up in a regular FFB household. My father is a Dian, actually, a rabbi. We grew up in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, which is a little off the beaten track. So yeah, pretty regular from mainstream household. And then I went to seminary, was single for many years, lived in New York for a while. So I would consider myself, I probably grew up a little bit more yeshivish and probably a little bit less yeshivish these days, if you want. Probably I consider myself more mainstream, but I think everyone does. Okay, that's perfect. And tell us about your professional background and what you do. I became a therapist many years ago, back when I was actually working in banking for a short while. And I had this epiphany late one night on the trading floor thinking, whose life am I helping? What am I doing here? So that's when the epiphany hit me of, oh, I need to go do something better than this. This was back in my early 20s. So back then I applied for school, eventually in Europe, that didn't work out. It was too complicated then. Eventually when I came to New York, when I was about 25 or so, I started going, I went to grad school. I'd already gone to undergrad elsewhere. So I went to grad school. I finished when I was about 29 or so with my MSW, social worker. Over the years since then, I worked in a bunch of different places. I started out working for an organization that I don't think exists anymore called Project Yes. I was doing work with teens at risk and their parents. I ran a crisis hotline for parents of teens at risk, provided referrals. We provided team mentoring services, things like that. And then after that, that eventually closed for lack of funding. 
After that, I did a bunch of different things. I worked in schools with different with kids. I worked in nursing homes. I worked with special needs kids, running programs at different things. Yeah, so eventually I found my calling in working with betrayed partners of sex addicts. There is a little bit of personal history that there's, I think everyone who goes into a specialty like that has a reason that they go into that. So that that's to do with my my personal stuff. But that's why I end up working with partners of sex addicts. So it's not really just partners of sex addicts. It's also partners of any betrayed partner, basically. So I got my CSAT a couple of years ago. CSAT is my certified sex addiction therapist, right? That's my certification for what I do. And I've been working with betrayed partners ever since, pretty much. So your training is to help the addicts themselves or their partners? Yeah, no, fair question. So the training, the CSAT training is really to help the addict. They train you some also to do the work with the betrayed partner and the family. After that, I did also go and get the APSATS training, which is specifically just for partners. So I'm actually trained to do both. My preference and my passion is working with the partners. In my practice, I do have an amazing religious guy. He's also a CSAT and he works with addicts mostly. So often when a couple comes to us or when a wife comes to us, I'll see the wife and he'll see the husband and then we get to collaborate and figure out what the best way forward is for both of them. So that actually works really well together and I... I'm really proud of the work that we've done and that we continue to do. So yeah, so my training really is for both, which I think is good because it helps me when I work with a betrayed partner. It helps me understand what her husband should be doing and it helps me explain to her what the process is because sometimes there's like a sense of impatience and oh, why is he not sober yet? So I'm able to explain that to her because I have had the training. So it helps. Thanks for explaining that. Do you remember which post connected us? So I feel like there's been a lot of posts similar to the one you're going to refer to in a minute. So I don't specifically remember which one it was, because I think, unfortunately, there's been a lot of them. But I have a vague idea. But go ahead. Remind me. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter what the post is. It's supposed to be a safe space. And the poster is anonymous. So I'm not trying to expose anybody. But the idea is this is a common thread that is seen in these groups. One of them we connected over. The wife, in this case, she catches her husband watching pornography or engaging with pornography. And this time... It, last time it happened, he promised he was getting help and they went to therapy. This happens again. She feels betrayed. She doesn't know what to do. And then I saw your comment. What I focused on was your training in this area specifically. So that intrigued me. I had a lot of questions and that's why I invited you to this conversation. And one of my question is, is this a Jewish issue because of halacha or is this a human issue and across all boards? That would be my first question. Okay, so really good question. I love the question and I think it's really relevant. So I want to just throw out there, when I was doing the training, there was maybe two or three other from people, Jewish from people on the training. Everyone else was non-Jewish. There were people who were part of the Mormon community, you know, Church of the Latter-day Saints. There were people who were there from Christian and other faith-based community. The only faith that I haven't seen on any of the trainings yet is Muslim, and I, it, it, that surprises me. I don't quite know why. I don't think it's because they don't have that issue. I just think maybe they're not talking about it or dealing with it. I don't know. Um, not to throw shade on any particular community. Um, but I, I, I share this because it's definitely a human issue. It's definitely not to do with... When, you know, when people throw the question out to me, I don't think it has anything... I don't look at it as from a halakhic perspective. There is a halakhic perspective, of course. But at the end of the day, people are... So let me back up. Hold on. Is this a faith issue? Is this anyone who believes in God and feels like this is a faith betrayal in addition to a couple betrayal? And, and going back even more, is that actually 
besides for the mental health damage it causes people, and we've had Ellie Nash here talking about pornography and how it has, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Is that really betrayal? That's my question. So not just betrayal of God, but betrayal in the the partner and the relationship. Right, 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 right. So I'm going to, I mean, usually you should answer the first question first, but I'm going to answer the first, the last question first. So in the research that they've done, and they, I mean, there's different institutions that do this type of research, whether it's ITAP or APSATS or other institutions of people who are professionals and experts in the field who do this type of research, where they interview women who've been betrayed of all, you know, across the board, across different ages, different styles, different types of relationships, monogamous, not monogamous, same sex, any different relationship. And I would say that across the board, a betrayal of porn is considered, for a woman, our experience as a woman is that a betrayal even if that of porn, and I don't say that to minimize porn, but sometimes people will say, oh, it was just porn. So that's why I throw that quantify, you know, qualifier out there. Women experience that as a betrayal, as an emotional betrayal, whether it's a husband watching porn, whether it's a husband going to massage parlors or prostitutes, whether it's him having one affair or multiple affairs. The emotional damage for a woman is, is very similar and almost is the same, pretty much. So, you know, coming back to your question around Faith-based, I don't think it has that much to do with faith. I think, you know, for people who are very religious, they might use that and say, oh, you know, you're a religious guy, you shouldn't be doing this. But even if he wasn't a religious guy, he still shouldn't be doing it. And I think that, you know, from my perspective, if somebody is in a monogamous marriage, a committed relationship, there is some say unwritten rules, but maybe they should be written and should be articulated around pornography, have that conversation just because you don't want anyone saying, oh, I didn't know. But I think there is an understanding that, porn is considered a betrayal. There are people out there who say, oh, no, it's okay. All, all men do it. And there are women who are okay with it. And again, no shade. I'm not going to judge that. I would say across the board in the research, most of the time women do consider that a betrayal. And that has nothing to do with their faith or religion or halacha, etc. Okay, let's go a little deeper. Can you explain what the betrayal is? Break it down. Let's say there are people who don't understand these emotions and these feelings and this ex- process and experience. Let's say they were engaging with pornography up until their marriage and now they are in their marriage and things are shifting or they understand or, or maybe they're a balachuva. Let's you know give them the benefit of the doubt here. How is this betrayal? Like share the woman's experience here. Okay, good question. Or the partner's. Yeah. yeah, so I think I want to differentiate between porn that happens outside of a monogamous committed relationship or marriage and porn that happens within that, because I do think there is a difference. The only place where I think, and I'll come back to the one area where I do think there is a connection between the two. But just to separate the two, I think that if you're in a committed relationship or a marriage for a woman, I think it's fair to say that for women, our sexuality is very personal. It, it's about how I look. It's about how I feel. It's about my identity as a sexual human being. And when I'm in a monogamous, committed relationship or a marriage, I bring that sexuality to the table. And I'm, our sexuality is a very intimate, personal kind of thing. For men, maybe it's a little bit different, right? Men, some men are able to be sexually active with more than one person. And they don't have that. Some men have less of that sense of, you know, there's this intimate specialness that has to stay just between me and my husband. So for a woman, we have that innately, which is, I think, an innate piece of femininity. So then when that gets taken away or gets ruined or gets taken away or gets spoiled, then that's kind of on a deeper level, that's an attack. That's a direct 
breach of my sense of sexuality, of femininity, and of attraction, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So from one perspective, as a woman, that's what happens to me. So imagine the husband goes and watches porn. Now the woman's perspective is the husband is probably going to say, oh, it's no big deal. It didn't mean anything. That's like one of the most classic things that I hear all the time. Oh, it didn't mean anything. It was nothing. I've heard people, men say that about affairs too, by the way. Oh, it didn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything. For the woman though, being that our femininity and our sexuality is very bound together with this sense of uniqueness and specialness and this kind of very private personal connection, ideally, that we have with our partner, going elsewhere messes with that, right? So if he watches porn in our brain, he might not be doing this, but for us, we think he's now comparing us to them. I've, I know of women who've come, who's, you know, I'm, I'm a brunette, I'm dark, right? So I know a woman who, like me, is dark and found her husband Googling, you know, women, uh, a blonde woman, right? And she says to her husband, I'm not blonde. If you wanted a blonde, go marry a blonde. And she was incredible. That was very, very hurtful to her because it made her feel like she wasn't adequate, like she's not enough. And now as women, as it is, without all this stuff, a lot of us struggle with body image issues or just kind of how we feel and how we look and we're very worried about it. And some of us go, go on diets or have work done or I don't know, whatever it is, right? It's how we look is very important to us. It's part of our currency, if you will. That's how we kind of maintain a relationship. For starters, it's a very superficial way of looking at it. Obviously, there's more to it, but it's an important piece of our psyche. It's an important piece of our identity, how we look and how our partner sees us. So if our partner now all of a sudden, we think he's maybe looking for something else, that kind of makes us feel less than now. And now if we're in bed with our partner after we know he watched porn, we're like, is he hoping, is he wishing I was different? Now I need to kind of compete with that image that he saw. This, it brings up all this kind of stuff, from, just from a sexuality perspective, it brings up all this stuff inside of the wife. Forget the whole piece of like, oh, you committed to me, why are you looking at other women, blah, 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 right? Just from that kind of, it does damage to her, her sexuality. She feels now, she feels inadequate. I come across this all the time. Women often feel inadequate afterwards, right? Why wasn't I good enough? Why wasn't I good enough to prevent him from straying? Like as if that was her responsibility, right? She all of a sudden takes that upon herself, right? you know, what am I less than this other person? Do I need to maybe start dressing up and be more sexual in bed? Maybe I didn't do enough. There's all this stuff that she starts doubting what otherwise should be a healthy sense of self, a healthy identity, a healthy sexual identity, and a healthy interaction, right? Remember that healthy sexuality happens when there's healthy intimacy. Healthy intimacy happens when there's vulnerability. It's very hard to be vulnerable and therefore very hard to be intimate if you don't feel like he thinks you're special and your, your body is attractive and special to him because he's seen so many other ones or he's still looking at so many other ones, right? So then how am I supposed to be, have, maintain that intimacy? How am I supposed to maintain that sense of vulnerability and be able to express whatever sexuality I want to express with him in the confines of our private life in our bedroom or whatever? So remember, it messes with a whole bunch of stuff just for the woman and she hasn't even watched anything. All she knows is that he's, and this is just somebody who's watched porn, forget somebody who's been to massage parlors, or to who's had an affair or etc right so i'm just sharing with you like this is a lot of what happens for a woman when she comes across her husband watching that you wanted to differentiate between committed partners versus singles yes so i think that's an important question i would say that look people are single people have needs we all human beings and we all have hormones and every so often so to say that oh you know single people should all be able to control themselves and in an ideal world yeah wonderful right but we're all adults and that's just difficult right so i would say men and women watch porn when they're single yes it happens and 
as long as it doesn't become an addiction, that's a scary piece. Sometimes it can become an addiction or they become so addicted or connected to it that the rest of their life starts falling apart. The problem with that, and I see this much more with men than with women, although it happens with women as well, when they're getting their needs met through porn, they're much less likely, there's no incentive to go find a real relationship, right? So if you look at porn as, you know, McDonald's fast food, and real sex with a real life person that's intimate and connective and emotionally, you know, emotionally present and you have all that self-expression, right? As like, you know, the, the $200 steak dinner, you can, you can get by on the McDonald's fast food, right? But it's not the same thing. But if you have enough McDonald's fast food, you're not going to be motivated to save up for the $200 steak dinner now. So that's one issue with, you know, watching porn on your own. I just feel like if we were to remove some of that shame, people wouldn't feel quite so guilty about it because guilt and shame really prevent people from developing a healthy sexuality. So on the one hand, is it great? No, it's not great. Ideally, they would be with someone. If it happens every so often, okay, it happens every so often. I would say be careful that it doesn't become an addiction. The part where I find that it overlaps into the marriage is the neuro, the neuropsych piece. We all have something called an arousal template. I'll explain real quick what that means. Basically, you know, you know, the, I'm trying to remember, was it a study or was it, there's a study like this, but there's also a children's book that has the same idea of an animal that's born, right? The imprint, the idea of imprinting. So an animal is born and they see the first animal they see, they think is their mother. So if a little duck is born and the first one they see is a cow, now they think the cow is their mother, they're going to follow the cow around. So the idea of imprinting. So when it comes to humans, we also have that kind of a similar idea. Our arousal template is built out of the imprinting and the relationships and the connections and traumas and different things that we have as children or as young adults or as teens or as a little bit older adults. And now those things become part of what will arouse us and what will turn us on when we're physically with someone. The problem with that is if porn becomes part of that arousal template, porn isn't real. Porn is obviously fake. The people aren't real. The, the, you know, the images are doctored, the way, you know, their actress is acting a certain way. So now that, and also remember, there's this kind of a heightened sense. It's much more intense, usually the pornography as well. So now take somebody who spent, I don't know, five years watching porn while they were single, right? And now they're married. They've got to basically switch from, this is a different sexual diet now. And they've got to switch to, remember also pornography and masturbation is fast food, happens much more quickly, right? You've got to get used to eating on the run to sitting down with a knife and fork and a napkin and, you know, silverware. It's different, right? Sexuality now, it's very different, right? When you're in bed with a real person, you've got to make eye contact. You've got to talk to them. You've got to make sure that they're enjoying themselves. You've got to tune into them, not just tune into yourself. There's all these other pieces that happen that when you're watching porn and masturbating, it just, that's not part of the it's not necessary, right? It's all about me and I take care of me and that's the end of it. When you're with someone, it's very different. So that, those are the pieces that kind of, that's the only area where I would say be careful if you're single and be careful because it will mess with your brain and it, you can detox from it. So if you spend enough time off porn, eventually your arousal template will come down and become something closer to normal and you will be able to be with a normal person as long as you're not a complete addict and you've messed, completely messed up your arousal template, in which case it's really tough to fix. Which um, leads me to my next question is, let's differentiate 
porn engagement with porn addiction? How would a wife know the difference? So before we get to the wife or spouse, I want to just differentiate, right? When something's an addiction, there is an amount of secrecy involved. There's an amount of obsession involved. There's usually attempts to stop that are unsuccessful, right? And this is before we get to marriage, right? Somebody who's single could find themselves saying, oh, I feel like I'm watching too much porn. I want to try and stop. I can't get myself to stop. Or I find myself thinking about it all the time and I can't get it out of my head. And I'm constantly like, you know, my friends want to go out for dinner, but I'm saying no, because I want to go home and watch porn or whatever it is. So that... Right. And then there's the shame and the secrecy involved. So that would be outside of the context of a marriage. I think for somebody who's married, remember also the piece that if a man is married and I'm using the men just, you know, as an example, it can, there's very frequently also women, it's not much talked about, but it does also happen. I'm just using it for the sake of conversation. It's easier, but I do just want to throw out there. It does happen in both directions. Going back to the male perspective. So a man in a relationship. So Remember, going back to what I said before about a guy who's single who watches porn, he doesn't have much incentive to go and find a real relationship because he's getting his needs met, right? A man who's married is going to have a similar experience, except that he already has the relationship, but he doesn't often will end up rejecting his wife. Now, I've seen it go in both directions with sex addicts. Sometimes the husbands will be very, very, very sexual, pushing the wives to do more and more, things that often she's uncomfortable with. Often she'll go along with it, and that creates that type of damage. The most that I've seen that usually happens, when it's only porn with a husband, usually what happens is that his wife is not going to be enough. Because remember, a, a woman, however gorgeous she might be, a real woman is still a real woman. Where none of us are perfect. We've all got a little bit of fat here and a little bit there, and we all wish we lost a little bit more weight you know, around our thighs or whatever it is, right? And we're all normal people, right? We're, none of us act like porn smarters in bed. I mean, if you do, hey, good for you. But like, like most of us aren't really capable of competing with that, right? So at some point, he's going to feel like what's happening in the bedroom isn't enough for him and he needs the porn to either supplement or replace it. So now the wife is sitting there and she's married and she's like, oh, this is strange. You know, make of a night I came home and my husband wasn't interested in me or he was interested in me and then we didn't sleep together for, I don't know, two weeks. And he's a young guy. He's 25, 26 years old. We don't have a thousand children. He's not so busy that he's exhausted. This is really strange, right? So she might, that's one thing that I've seen people start noticing. So that's the piece that's specific to porn addiction. I would say any addiction will usually come with not being present, being very distractive, being very secretive, being very dismissive. Often a woman will have a gut instinct that something isn't right, and then there'll be this gaslighting dismissiveness. No, you're crazy. No, what are you talking about? Ah, blah, 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 right? I mean, those things could happen when there's any type of addiction. It doesn't have to be porn. I think if you get those things plus, he's either not interested or way too interested. When I say way too interested, I mean to the point where Nida, he can't keep Nida anymore. He wants a blowjob or he wants to be physical or whatever it is. When you're Nida, right? For a religious guy, that's a pretty big deal. But even it doesn't even have to be that extreme. It could be, you know, you don't want to be physical every single day, maybe, right? Or maybe there's things he wants you to do that you don't want to do. I remember sexual engagement needs to be consensual, right? You can't be forced. You can't be pushed. And if it's something that you don't want to do, you're allowed to say no. And guilting a wife into doing something, oh, you're not a good wife. Oh, if you don't do it, I'm going to go elsewhere, is abusive. It's really not okay to do that, right? And I'd say there's two ends of the spectrum, right? One where the husband disengages sexually, might be with her every so often, but really not, not on a consistent basis and not frequent enough. And she also finds herself unable to talk about things. Often he might, she might not find, like sometimes people want to be able to experiment different things sexually in the bedroom. And often the husband will be kind of like uncomfortable with that because they've kind of compartmentalized 
their sexual stuff in their head and they can't bring it into the bedroom. There's like, you'll kind of notice kind of cross wiring. The wiring kind of gets messed up when there's a porn addiction. It's not always easy to kind of know exactly what it is you're seeing, but I find that 99, almost 100% of the time, the women that come to me, they're like, something's up. I don't know what it is, but I knew for a long time something was up and I kept on wondering what it was. And maybe I asked something, but he dismissed me or maybe I didn't want to know. I would say the one message I have for women out there is if something's happening in your gut, your gut never lies. And if you have a sense that something's not right, chances are something might not be right. He might not have a porn addiction. It might be something else, but odds are you're probably not crazy. So the women who are posting are not overreacting. They're not imposing halachic. Right. So I think what you're saying is, you know, are they just, you, you know, using religion to shut down what is otherwise a healthy expression of sexuality? Is that what you're trying? Right. Perfect. No, I heard the statistics right. that men think about sex 60% of every minute. <laughs> 60% of every minute. Okay. So, That's a lot. <laughs> maybe it's a wrong statistic, but it was something along the lines of like, you're crazy if you think men aren't thinking about sexuality and sex all the time. Okay, so that's a little bit of a different question. I want to come back to that. And that, you know, again, would be my opinion because I'm a woman. I'm not a man. I've never been inside a man's head. But let me get back to that one. <laughs> I want to go back to the first question. You know, when women post, are they really maybe, I mean, maybe they're just infringing on what's a healthy sexual outlet. A healthy sexuality involves an openness and a connectiveness. And if people want to include porn in their sexual repertoire, I'm not going to judge them for it. Go ahead. But remember, that involves them talking about it. That means that there's no secrecy. There's no hiding. There's no gaslighting. There's an open conversation. Hey, darling, you know, I was looking, you know, somebody told me about this website. It sounds really hot. Do you want to watch it with me? Great. If she wants to do that. I mean, personally, I don't think it's ideal. But if they want to do that, I'm not going to judge them for it. And that definitely wouldn't count as, you know, a porn addiction. Like she might be uncomfortable. She might say, honey, I love you, but I don't want to do that. And he should really be able to respect that. Again, that doesn't count as a porn addiction because he's talking to her about it. They're having an open conversation about it. If the addiction piece has that kind of element of shame and secrecy and hidden and, and it's kind of like, you know, not being present and not being fully one-sided, open and transparent. It's very much, first of all, it's very much one-sided, but, but sometimes a wife might say, hey, I don't want to watch porn, but you go ahead. That's, that's also one-sided, but he's being open with her. There's a transparency, there's a forthcomingness. A lot of the times when there's a porn addiction or a sex addiction, so many women say to me, it's not even about the porn. If he would have just be honest with me, I'm upset about the porn. I don't want him to be watching porn, but if he would have just told me about it, I would, you know, I'm not happy about it, but I probably would survive that. But it's the lying and hiding about it that bothers me so much. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, a marriage is based on trust. If you don't have trust, what do you really have by way of a marriage? They say that about financial issues as well, health issues, like keeping anything a secret. 100% that goes for anything. It's not just porn or sex. What kind of marriage do you have if you're starting off on a lie or lies come up during the marriage? A woman feels very betrayed and hurt. And what is it? I thought we trusted each other. What happened here? Um, going to the halachic piece, I think that, that, I mean, look, there is a halachic piece. Halacha, I, I do believe that Chazal had a we're way before their time in understanding healthy sexuality. I do believe that healthy sexuality involves, you know, an interaction between one man and one woman who, you know, in, in a regular monogamous relationship, who engage solely with each other on an emotional, right? There are, Chazal have all sorts of halachas about emotionally where you have to be, how the husband has to talk to her and get her into that emotional place, how there has to be a strong emotional connection before there's a physical connection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I do believe that those things are there for a reason and because, you know, Halakha has a way of 
setting us up for the healthiest sexuality possible. So when a woman says, oh, I was aiming for the halachic version, you know, the ideal version of a sexual life with you, my husband, right? There, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss that, but I would say that it's not just halacha, it's also just kind of damaging on an emotional level and healthy sexuality level, if that makes sense. I'd like to dive into the other layers of betrayal in a committed relationship, as well as finding out, is there a path to recovery? Have you seen success? How long does it take? What does it take? Yeah, so those are, there's a few different questions in there. So I'll start at the top. I think what you started was, with was just dive into other forms of betrayal. Was that, was that the first question? Yeah. yeah. Betrayal happens. I think for a woman, remember, we get married for emotional safety. And especially in this day and age, we don't need a man in order to get pregnant. I mean, ideally, yes. But in this day and age, we, we're, a lot of us are financially independent. We're, we're successful. We're accomplished. We don't need a man for the financial. We don't need a man, right? So we really, we get married for the emotional piece, for the emotional connection, that safety, to have somebody there for us, to, right? When that gets shattered by betrayal, the woman often kind of feels like, what do I have left? They often say to me, I feel like the rug was pulled out from under me. There is this kind of sense of, I'm, I'm left out in the cold. What do I have now? I don't have the sense of safety. And that could be, you know, my special, my one person who is supposed to keep me safe is now the person who hurt me. So now the person that I usually go to for safety and for comfort and for connection is now the person who hurt me. So often when there's betrayal, women will find themselves kind of, they often tell, say to me like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm going crazy. He hurt me so much, but I still want to go to him for a hug. And it becomes this kind of, it's very hard to manage that, right? Especially when it's something sexual. But I would say even when it's other things, it's hard to go elsewhere for that. So I think just coming from the sense of betrayal, there's a sense of what, what's left of my marriage here? What, what, am I, what am I still doing here? Now, a lot of women don't want to leave. Most women, nobody actually wants to leave a marriage, right? I think even when people get divorced, even in the Western scenarios, they want to stay if there's any way possible to stay, but sometimes they have to leave. In situations like this, I think they very much want to be able to stay, but it becomes very difficult because unless the person understands and is able to kind of hold space for their emotional reaction and their hurt, there's no space for that. And then where does that leave the wife? I don't know if I'm being very clear on this piece. Yeah, it's it's that catch-22 situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. there's a... There's a book by Michelle Mays called The Betrayal Bind, and she describes it really well. And she talks about, you know, exactly what I said, this kind of cycle of like me needing comfort and connection from the one person that I chose to be the person to give me comfort and connection. And now he hurt me. So now where do I go for that comfort and connection? So I spend my time being angry at him and then I'm exhausted from being angry at him and I just want some love. So I go to him for that love but then I'm with him for a little bit. And then eventually I start feeling angry. How could he do this? And I push him away and round and round we go. And as somebody breaks the cycle. So often that's where women will be when they come to me and they're kind of like, what do I do? I'm going insane. I'm crazy. So that's a very common kind of dynamic, if you will. We have an episode reasons for divorce and based off of the anecdotal research, the number one reason for divorce, at least in firm communities is addiction. Would you agree with that? I wish I could disagree, but I think it's actually very prevalent. I don't necessarily think it's sex addiction or porn addiction. I think there's other addictions out there as well, financial, gambling, or uh, substance, alcohol. I mean, I've come across a lot of different types of addictions. I think because 
there is a piece, I think, that because of our community and the way we are set up around sexuality, where things aren't talked about, where boys in yeshiva might be shamed, you know, for, you know, maybe having an erection or masturbating or looking at things. And that kind of messes with their sense of sexuality, as opposed to kind of just acknowledging that this is this is what boys do. And let's try not to do that too much because it's not the healthiest, but let's not shame you for it. And this stuff doesn't get talked about. So I think that there may be marriages out there where this stuff happens and maybe people might be more open to go talk to someone and get help and maybe it doesn't happen quite so quickly or so effectively because there isn't enough education around this or knowledge and then it becomes worse and worse to the point where eventually it passes the point of no return. So that is something that is, you know, a problem and one thing that I do try to do is I consider it one of my missions and my passions to educate which is one of the reasons I'm here today with you, but not just to educate the public, educate therapists, ed- educate rabbis, educate color teachers, communal leaders, etc., so that they understand, you know, some of the do's and don'ts around how to treat a woman who thinks that her husband has an addiction. You know, I had a Robertson say to someone, oh, please, it's just porn. It's no big deal. You know, it's not a reason to leave, right? That, which is incredibly gaslighting. I know of people who've been to therapists who, very prominent therapists, very well-known therapists, who are not trained in this area at all, very qualified in every other area. But when it was discovered that there was a sex addiction, the therapist did not know what to do. And they gaslit the woman and minimized it for her and created a lot more damage than there already was, when really they should have referred out and said, hey, go find somebody who's specialized in this particular area because I don't really know what I'm doing. And I cannot begin to tell you how many times I get these issues in my office where people who don't know what they were doing did damage. So just coming back to what we were talking about, I do make it my business to really try and educate. I'm actually connected with an organization called Guard Their Hearts, which is an organization. It's a little bit like Guard Your Eyes is for the men who do, you know, who watch porn and Guard Their Hearts is for the women guarding their heart when they get hurt by sex addiction. So I do that together with a a woman called Aviva Cole. And we're actually working on something called Betrayed Religious Leaders Betrayed Partner Training. So we're looking to educate religious leaders. So that could be rabbis, color teachers, you know, whatever about this issue so that they can know some do's and don'ts. They can know what to do when they do come across a couple like this. So I just want to, I'm just throwing that out there because if there are any listeners out there that are either color teachers or are connected with a rabbi or some member of the community that they feel could use or would be interested in this kind of education or they would like for us to come and present in their community, like please reach out and we'd be very happy to do that because I really do think that it's a real problem and really important. I think we're off topic by, from the question that you asked, I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Can you touch upon other forms of sex betrayal in a partnership, in a marriage, and maybe how it different, how it affects the situation differently? Or can you come back from everything? What are the differences maybe? Or is it the same effect on the marriage? No, I, I, unfortunately, well, I all I know is, is that maybe when there's an actual person involved, you know, Post- you need to ask for help. And maybe with porn, you don't know right away that you have to engage and you might be gaslit. Yes, let's talk about different types of sexual betrayal within a marriage. When a husband watches porn, it's bad and the damage is incredible, so I'm not going to minimize it. However, if he's staying inside the house, the damage is emotional, right? Mostly, right? And the sexual identity stuff that I described before, etc. When a husband goes outside the house, first of all, there's already an inherent danger there because if he's not using protection, he could bring home all sorts of STDs. Fun times, right? So, or, or get, get someone, someone pregnant. pregnant. 
and have another family. <laughs> or be with somebody who says that she's 18, but is really only 15. And then two years later comes back to accuse him of something. Right. I've heard of that one as well. Um, so I'm not trying to, I feel like we're being, I'm being a little bit alarmist. I'm not trying to freak anyone out, but there is, I do think there is a higher level of danger. There are safety concerns, serious safety concerns. I know of a therapist who was not trained in this area who said that he does treat sex addiction. He's still out there doing this. Whose husband, who, and the husband was going out there and sleeping with people without protection, coming home to his wife and sleeping with her and was, and did not tell the wife. The wife did not know. And there was people who got hold of this therapist and told him, you have to tell the husband that he has to tell the wife because it's not safe. This is literally like Pukwok Nefesh. If she ends up with like HPV or something like that, like, are you going to be able to sleep at night? Yes, these things do happen. I don't think she got sick. I think she's fine. You know, that woman in question, but these things do happen. So just from a safety perspective, yes, there is a big difference when somebody goes outside of the house. I call it, I, I differentiate between in the house and outside the house just because, you know what I mean? Like one is home and one is not even though it doesn't have to be like that. There's that differentiation. And I think also there's, you know, I think that when people go outside of the house to a massage parlor or a prostitute, there's monetary, you know, things to think about. Sometimes they'll spend a lot of money. I know somebody who spent a lot of money on a prostitute and then came home and yelled at his wife for spending $3 extra on some piece of groceries or something. And then when she found out and she realized, can you imagine how angry she was and how hurt she was? How she's trying so hard to pinch every penny because they don't have money and he went and blew, I don't know, whatever it was, $500 on, on something like this. So there are a lot of these different aspects of when you take it outside the house, right? The truth is you could be spending a ton of money on porn too, right? I think when you go outside the house, there's also that piece of like the preparation, maybe going to a hotel with someone or maybe going to a massage parlor or maybe, you know, there's something called cruising where men drive around trying to pick someone up, right? There's all these different types of things. I think for a woman, it's just, you know, the damage I don't think is emotionally that much bigger. It is big and it's horrendous and incredibly upsetting. And there's also the shame involved. What if somebody saw him? What if he was somebody that I know? What if his profile was like on Tinder and somebody I know came across that? It's mortifying. It's very embarrassing. So I think there are, there is definitely a magnified, it's a different level when it goes outside the house for sure. Yeah. I think I also want to throw out there that there is a piece around the safety Right. Where I do, I want to talk to you about mikvah and things like that as well. I don't know if now is the right time. Yes, but. now is the right time. You are the expert here. I'm just facilitating the conversation, but take us where it needs to go. For example, if somebody suspects that their husband is acting out outside of the house and is with someone and is afraid of STDs, that's grounds for getting a heter not to go to the mikvah. And I think any rabbi will give you a heter not to go to the mikvah if you're afraid that your husband is dealing with until he gets an STD test. I think that's. That's an easy one from my perspective. Um, I've never actually had to ask for a heter for that on behalf of a client of mine. I have had situations where a woman didn't want to be with her husband because of the sexual acting out and didn't want to go to the mikvah. And I say this, this is very much case-by-case -case basis, and this is very much you really do need to know what you're doing in situations like this, because especially I am a religious woman, and I do really consider mikvah an important part of my life, an important part of a couple's marriage and life. So I, I say this with care. However, I do think that there are times when a question like that has to be asked. And I think that sometimes the Rabbanim don't understand the emotional damage that's been done. I remember what I said before about emotional connection, emotional intimacy, emotional vulnerability. If a woman isn't able to kind of have that sense of safety physically with her husband and therefore doesn't want to be with him, I have at times made phone calls to Rabbanim to get a heter for a woman not to go to the mikvah because she was so upset and just didn't feel like she could should be with him. The reason why I tell people to make sure to get a heter and not just decide on their own is because 
and again, I just unfortunately know this from experience with clients, etc., is that Halakha has something called a moredes, which is a woman who intentionally tortures her husband by not going to the mikvah. That's kind of like how they describe it, which basically means you're withholding sex from him intentionally to hurt him, not because you're in a fight or not because you're upset or not because you're tired, but intentionally to hurt him, right? It's kind of like this, uh, there's, a, there's an intentional piece of it. And obviously that's not what's happening in this situation. However, if it came to a divorce, somebody, and she didn't go to the mikvah, somebody could at some point turn around and accuse her of that. I don't think it's a, I think it's a false accusation, but the accusation could happen. If she's smart, she goes to a rav, gets a hetzer, and that way nobody can accuse her of that. So that's the reason why I tell women, you know what, I get that you don't want to go. I'm not going to force you to go. Let's just get a hetzer to cover your back so that nobody can ever turn around and accuse you of that. That's the reason why I do that. Right? Not because, God forbid, I'm going to force, if, you know, if I can't get a hetzer, then you have to go. God forbid. I would never, the trauma that happens to a woman is immense, and I would never, ever dream of, you know, pushing someone to go if they weren't ready to do that. The path to, to recovery and a successful yes. relationship. Is there one? And what does it look like? How does trust, How does trust? Yeah. So let's move to a more positive yeah. and more hopeful, because I feel like this is all very negative and maybe scary for people to listen to. So let's move to a more hopeful slant. So recovery. I would say in my experience that a big piece of sobriety and recovery for an addict is learning how to be, remember that the, one of the big features of addiction is the lying and the deceit. So the opposite of that would be one of the big features of recovery, learning how to be very open and very transparent. When you want to change a characteristic, let's say you lie about something, you want to go to the opposite extreme and eventually you'll make your way back to the middle, right? That's how classically we're taught. So for a, this is one of the reasons why a husband who's an addict or even a husband who has betrayed who's not necessarily an addict or who you don't know is an addict needs to go to somebody who works with betrayed partners or betrayers or and addicts. One of the things they'll do is coach him and teach him how to become very forthcoming and very transparent. For a woman, if we want to start trusting again, in order to trust, you need transparency and you need it to be forthcoming not like I'm asking you, oh, did you go past that store? No, I didn't go past that store. It's going to sound more like, darling, I just want you to let you know I'm leaving the office right now. I'm going to be going past that store, but I'm going to make sure, you know, to look the other way or whatever it is. And I'm going to be home at 5.15. And you know what I mean? Like being proactive in your transparency, being proactive in your forthcomingness is one of the big things that will help a woman start feeling a little bit more safe. That's one big thing that I see. And I think that Women have this intuition. We just, we know when a guy is lying. You just, I mean, the truth is I, I say that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And sometimes women will be like, for years he was doing this and I had no idea. Definitely after the fact, you know, you, once your antenna is up, you kind of know like, okay, that, that doesn't ring true. And I'll tell you, I have, a, I have somebody that I work with where the husband had, a, had an affair for, I don't know, eight years or something like that. And at the time she really had no idea until eventually the spouse of the person he was having an affair with threatened to tell her. So then her husband came clean to her. He came clean to her around pieces that she already knew. He was not really forthcoming on his own. And whenever she would ask questions, he'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it meant nothing. It meant nothing. So the therapist wasn't really trained in betrayal. So wasn't able to pick up on the fact that, of course, it meant something. It was eight years worth. Like, how does that not mean anything? And the woman sensed this and just was not able to forgive for a really, really, really long time until eventually the husband did see somebody who is, who's trained in betrayal and was able to kind of call him out and say, come on, dude, 
don't tell me it didn't mean anything. It was eight years worth. And you're telling me that you barely slept with her. It was more of a talking on the phone type thing. Like, don't give me the whole, it wasn't like, it wasn't emotional. It was purely physical. It didn't mean anything to me. So once we were able to start the, get the guy to be truly honest with himself and then really, really honest with his wife, that's when finally a little bit of the healing could start. So, you know, I just put that out there that if you feel like something isn't quite right, Sometimes it's the trauma talking and you might want to just, this is why you should, for yourself, if you're a betrayed partner, get your own therapy to make sure you're not, you know, taking something small and making it into something bigger, but allow yourself to be able to really in tune with your gut and listen to what you're saying. So that's one piece of how people heal from betrayal, that kind of really open, real, really forthcoming. From my experience, honestly, the husbands, the, the couples where the husband is able to be forthcoming, be honest, be open, take responsibility humble himself, go to groups, get the help he needs, and really, truly open himself up to changing. Those are the couples that have a chance. The ones where that's not happening or their husband is in denial or he's gaslighting or minimizing or lying or whatever, I don't want to say they don't have a chance. It's just that I, I don't feel very hopeful about those. That, that's usually my yardstick. Again, I have been wrong. I have had times when there was a couple where I thought for sure that, you know, within a year from now, they'll be, you know, divorced and they're still hobbling along together. Are they happy? I don't know, but they're still together. So again, it's not my job to tell anyone to get divorced. I would never do that. And if people want to stay together, sometimes there's kids involved. There's like lots of different things to, you know, bring, take into account. But if you're asking, what you're asking, I think is, is there healing from betrayal where there's going to be true happiness after that? I do think that that is possible. I do think that there are couples out there that are, that are able to kind of come back stronger and able to kind of really build a closer connection because of what happened and build a, a, a much stronger marriage after that. So I, I do think it's possible, but I do think it takes a lot of work on both, on both sides. And the reason I say both sides is obviously on the side of the betrayer or the addict, but also on, on the part of the wife. Now, not because she's guilty or you know, any of this is her fault, but she is going to have to do a lot of work around the trauma that, the, you know, how this has affected her, what comes up for her and try and do her own work about re being really healthy, not trying to control him, being very real with herself and with her husband about what is happening, what's not happening, having some of those really, really difficult conversations and doing some of that repair work, which is not easy at all. So the short answer to your question is yes, it's possible, but it's going to involve a lot of work. Wow, you've said many important things, a lot, some obvious or not obvious. What's the word? It makes sense, but it doesn't make sense until right, somebody explains right, right. it to it you. It resonates. <laughs> That's what I use usually. It resonates. Yeah. It resonates. And lots of PSA, public service announcements, worthy for Rabbanim and Rebitsons, Kala teachers, friends, mothers, anyone who thinks they have access to a therapist and whatever, just knowing that you need somebody trained in betrayal therapy and that both partners can use therapy. And there's just lots and lots, you know, differentiating, just learning about the neuro programming for single people and being aware of that. And there's just a lot there. So thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? So there was one more piece that I feel like I want to throw out. And when I was say, talking just now about the partner, the wife going to therapy, oftentimes the wife will be resistant because, hey, it's not my problem. I didn't do anything wrong. But I just want to reiterate that the couples that end up staying together, that end up making it and they end up with a better marriage because of this are the marriages where the wife or the betrayed partner did end up going for therapy. 
because her anger and her heart need somewhere to go. And her husband or the betrayer isn't usually capable, especially not at the beginning of hearing it or understanding it or empathizing it or holding space for it. So she doesn't find somewhere to go or someone to talk to, just even just to express and process some of that anger and trauma. It's going to spill out into her marriage and it's going to be much harder to rebuild. So that's why I kind of just want to throw out there. That's one of the reasons I do what I do, because I see a big difference between women who come to me. I can't say that I save every marriage. That would be ridiculous, right? But I do think that giving them somewhere to express that and talk about it and figure out what they need does help a lot in helping them be able to stay married and, and understand what's happening and deal with it better. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're very welcome. If anyone ever has any questions or wants to reach out to me, they're very welcome to. I do have access to resources, whether it's Guard Their Hearts or it's ITAP, which is the organization that provides me with my certification and training and helping people find a therapist like me in their state or you know somewhere close by or a therapist for their husband. I'm always open to people who want to reach out or have questions. So I just want to throw that out there. Thank you for sharing that. This is so valuable. You're very Thank welcome. You for Thank you so time. much for having me. And it sounds like you do a great job on your podcast. So I look forward to listening to more of those. Um, and thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for listening until the end. You are listening to The Francisca Show on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network. That also includes podcasts like Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, Chokhmat Nashim, and Let My People Eat. Check them out. The link is in the show notes. If you would like to reach out with comments, feedback, please send me a message. My email is in the show notes. And if you'd like to sponsor, also please reach out. And if you'd like to join the WhatsApp discussion group, send me a message as well. Hope you have a great week. Take care. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.